0: Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 42. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 42. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Montez. This week we're looking at the book Misunderstood God by Darren Hufford. Last uh, time we looked at this book, I think we were in chapters one and two. This week, we'll see where we get to. Um, Where do you want to start, Greg? Well, I spent the majority of my time in Chapter 4. I read through Chapter 3, and maybe we could touch on a couple things and just kind of... Oh, yeah, I should also note that... So just by way of background, if you're just dropping in on this episode. So Misunderstood God is, I think, basically an attempt to... Well, the subtitle of the book is The Lies Religion Tells Us About God. And I think it would be a fairly accurate summary to say each chapter kind of examines a different aspect of what he believes is a misunderstood version of God. So week one, we had the lie we were told, or not week one, chapter one, the lie we were told, chapter two, who is he really? Chapter three, the hair trigger God, which is where we're going to start today. Chapter four, the divine manipulator. Chapter five, the jealous God. I didn't find a lot in these, in, in three and four, I didn't see a lot. Chapter five, the jealous God, I think could be weeks of discussion. I think that's a particularly Mm -hmm. well-known, I think some would assume very well understood topic, but Mm -hmm. I would like to do a lot more thought and research about five. So, or the topic of God being jealous. So, so lead with what you got. Okay. Well, uh, chapter
1: three, uh, is the hair trigger. God is about patience and God being patient. And, um, I, I thought, I thought that what he, what he did here is, was good and valuable. And I guess, yeah, I mean, my take generally on this book, I like where Darren's going in general, right? I like this emphasis because he's really trying to emphasize love. And I think he does a generally a, a good, a good job with it. And particularly, he's, he's quite, uh, he's quite provocative, generally in good ways, with how he tries to tear down and uh, get underneath some of these conceptions that Christians hold that, really seem to be at odds with an idea of love that we might consider to be normal or healthy or valuable in other areas of our lives but in somehow when it comes to our religious beliefs we take on things and accept things that um we wouldn't elsewhere i'm going to come back to that cuz i really found that powerful in chapter 4 and um but here in chapter 3 you know on page 26 he, he writes in the middle there, I think most people see patience as little more than holding back anger. Um, and he's, so he's making this relationship between patience and anger. I thought that was really good. And then, um, at the bottom of page 27, he starts moving into a theme that's going to become more dominant in 20, in, pardon me, chapter four, which is, uh, this idea of fear. In the last paragraph he writes, the God many have, have been raised to fear is extremely impatient. Um, and, and, and this is the other part of it that really ties in with this whole idea of fear. He goes on, you know, I'm going to skip, well, I'll read the whole thing. Um, the God many have been raised to fear is extremely impatient. He this God expects perfection and is impatient with us to get it right. In my home church, the possibility of being sent to hell for all eternity was held over my head. It was the other side of God's patience, the fire and the volcano. And so this idea of patience being
0: sort of contrasted with fear and particularly, you know, what Fear fear of hell. Can you relate to that though? See, I can't. I don't I, I can relate a little bit. Well, I can definitely relate to the fear message. The fear message in my experience was more around fear of sinning and what that would lead to, not Mm-mm. the fear of hell or that God was one day going to just finally wake up fed up with me and it'd be all over. I I, I don't really I I haven't s- experienced or seen that.
1: No, and I I haven't either. Uh, you know, when I was in the church as a Christian at that point, I think what I do see, and I'll just tie this in with chapter 4, where the, um, the theme is kindness, but he, so in chapter 3, the theme is patience, and he looks at impatience. In chapter 4, the theme is kindness, and, you know, I, I'm not entirely agreeing with him, but the opposite that he views kindness to be, the opposite of kindness in his eyes, is uh, manipulation, and so part of the the idea that I wanted to zero in on, and I think he builds up in chapter 3, but zeroing in on it in chapter 4 is this whole idea of, you know, manipulation uh, really being, in terms of Christianity, this idea of the fear of hell and the threat of hell. And even if that, that's not um, something that somebody within the church as a Christian feels, there's this sort of, uh, you know, we, we have to do this because these people are going
0: to hell, you know. And well, so that's it's, the perfect complement or contrast to not a fan.
1: Yeah,
0: oh, it is very much so,
1: and, and I think it's a
0: huge, huge
1: issue. I think it's a huge problem. I think it's a huge misunderstanding. Um, but in chapter three, then he's building on this idea of fear, you know. Um, and I don't. Th- there are a couple things that I that I, I was really kind of, uh, you know. I think what I see, my general response to this book is, I'm I'm with Darren. I'm we're we're going along together and, and he's saying something and I'm kind of saying yeah and he says another thing and I'll say yeah and he says a third thing and I'll say huh <laughs> <laughs> like, Really are you <laughs> So so he he's done this you know he's mentioned on pages 26 and 27 about um patience and uh fear and fear in relation to hell and whether you, you know, as a Christian, you have this fear of doing something wrong and going to hell or whether this fear of hell is just out there and it's the motivating force, the, to use the words from chapter four, the manipulating force. And I think that's quite accurate for becoming a Christian. In other words, there's manipulation involved in your choice, your religious choice. And that, that's a scary thing. But
0: yes, at the and end I would it, say, but I would say <laughs> it's an overarching, an overarching fear, not a daily, well, well it's a, I'd say it's a fear for making the decision, which, have we said, which, as we've said many times before, isn't really a decision. It's a no-brainer. Do you want hell or do you want heaven? Well, I want heaven. Yeah, but there's some people that question that whole model. It's a good cop, bad
1: cop model. You know, if you think about it in terms of manipulation, God's a bad cop. Jesus is the good cop. Well, it's a scam. Do you want to buy into the scam? No, thanks. Okay, so I think in that way, it's a no-brainer to sort of back out of the whole thing. And I think a lot of people who aren't Christians or who were Christians have done it for just that reason. And I applaud that. I, I honestly do. I I do see manipulation in that. I do see good cop, bad cop. You know, I had this uh, – I may have sent it to you at one point. It's this, you know, picture of God with the, the white flowing beard and he's got this kind of – he's an angry looking guy, right? This is an angry looking old guy with a beard and it says – let me save you from sending you to hell. <laughs> Wait, is this the tweet of God? Uh, no, it's not the tweet of God, but it was, um <laughs> it, it could have been. But I just, I just love the, the kind of um the intense irony and, and manipulation in that, in the little, you know, per, um, caption below the image, let me save you from sending you to hell. Huh? How's that work? You know? And it's, it's it strikes me, and I think it strikes many people as being in, incredibly manipulative. And I think if this is the way we see God, then I think many of us are on good grounds for saying, I don't want anything to do with that. You know, and I think that that in turn is something that Christians can't understand. And I think Darren, again in chapter four, he makes some really good points about, hey, we've
0: we've accepted some stuff as normal that this ain't normal. Well isn't that kind of ironic if it's if we're being manipulated into belief or into doing what God wants, then how is there any choice involved? Well, I think there's
1: choice, but the choice is based on fear, right? You know, it's 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 it's
0: about embracing. Is it really a choice if you're... Well, that comes down to what we've been saying all along. Is is it a choice if it's like, well, would you like to go to heaven or burn in hell forever? Hmm... Yeah, or Okay, you, it's a choice but not really.
1: And 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 the, yeah, but that's for those people who have who will allow themselves to believe that there is validity in that in that particular um you know, binary option, right? Between going to hell or not going to hell. And that's I think I think it's fear-based, but I, I but I think the other so for an atheist or an agnostic who says, you know what, I see the manipulation here and I'm backing away, that's also a decision perhaps not made out of fear. But they see the fear and they see the motivation. They see the manipulation and they say, I don't want anything to do with this. So they're motivated. They're
0: It's revulsion for them.
1: Yeah, I think so. That's really good. That's a good word. I think it's revulsion. They're repelled by it at very least. And they say, you know, I don't want to live like this. And so I think one of the great things, one of the fantastic things that I've found quite frequently, and, and points of real kinship for me with atheists and agnostics, is that some of these people are very astute and perseverant truth seekers. Some of the things that they reject as Christianity, I reject. We've got a lot in common. And I blogged about this um about a year ago and, and would need to do a little bit more actually, but just looking at what Christians could learn by listening to, by attending to what atheists and agnostics have to say about Christianity, which is, you know, seems like a completely um, ridiculous point. I mean, if you go back and and, and read some Augustine, particularly um, uh, uh, De Doctrina Christiana or Teaching Christianity in English, uh, you you're going to find him saying that. Right? He's got a very famous passage where he talks about, in his terms, plundering the Egyptians. It's him using the, you know, philosophy and, and the other sort of skills and practices of the, the thinkers who are not Christian around him uh, is important because there's truth there. And I think likewise there's truth to be found in people who would see the option between heaven and hell and say this is, this is manipulation. This is fear-based, and I'm backing away from this. In fact, and this is, this is good evidence that, that uh, Christianity is not true. And I would say, yeah, if that's all Christianity was, I'm with you. And I, I was with them, right? Because I, I made that move personally. I let go of my faith for seven years. And it wasn't a sort of, oh, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian or if I'm not sure if I'm not. I, I definitely was not. I definitely backed away. How God saw that in God's mind, I'll never know. I'm not in God's mind and I never will be. But from my perspective, I definitely wasn't a Christian, and so uh, I'd, yeah, i yeah I appreciate what he's done, what Darren's done. Pages twenty six and twenty seven. We just talked about twenty
0: eight. That's where the big butt comes. Well, it does, and I just I just wonder about this. Um, I so would he, love he, to he, see if we could get him on here sometime. I think it'd be
1: great. He talks in the middle of page twenty eight. I'll just he writes. He said many churches have taken on this idea of an impatient, tough love. Doing what they believe their father, being God, does. If people don't measure up, the church reminds them of the burning hell awaiting them. This type of church becomes a perfect breeding ground for fakeness, where people close their hearts off to others and put on masks to hide from judgment. See, I've never gone to a church like that. But can you well hide fakeness? What idea? You can imagine it. But you know, what did you think about his comment about fakeness? That they're faking it. Well, I guess what, I, what I'm what i thinking here is that even though like this idea of tough love and even if it's not backed up with, you know, you could be going to hell, that there's still this idea that when when things are demanded of you right away, it's very difficult to be open about your failings. And I typically find in most churches I go to that the people aren't open about their needs or their failings and this whole idea, this whole reality of fakeness. I, I generally thought that was a pretty good point
0: even if yeah i don't i don't also have that okay so background. i th- i think where i g- got lost i was too focused on the the whole threat of hell and not okay. the, i was seeing the threat of hell as being the motivator for their fakeness uh and i was like no i don't see that link at all well i don't see i haven't experienced that and i'm not since i haven't experienced that i can't really relate to people being fake because of their fear of hell got it yeah
1: no, I would agree with you. I can't relate to that either. Though I, It was the part about fakeness and impatience and tough love or however you want to put it. Whether it's backed up with the threat of hell or just, you know, this kind of disapproval. The- there
0: is, There is, I don't know if this ties in, but I know I have observed a lot of, well, quote, those people in the world are empty and lost and they just don't realize it. Mm-hmm. They just don't realize that they're empty and lost, but really they have this God-shaped hole that can only be filled by God. And it's almost like this pity party, this pi- uh not pity party, but I've just seen it described over and over again. Those, those poor, those quote, poor lost people in the world, they're just chasing futility and trying to make themselves satisfied with material things and... They mm-hmm. think they're fine and they say they don't need God, but really 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 deep inside there's going to come a day when when they will and you know, hopefully they'll get there, but we we have the right answers and uh the truth and sadly they don't. Which mm. for me was one of the things that just pushed me over the top because all these quote people living in the world that weren't supposed to have anything as far as I could see were they were living in a lot less angst and worry than I was. Yeah,
1: it's not ironic.
0: Yeah. Now, how does all that play out when we die and go into eternity and all that? I don't know, but just thinking in the the here and now, it didn't quite add up for me. No, no, and I
1: think that's where that's where I'm going in in, in chapter uh, with the the things that struck me in chapter four. I think that was the the kind of relationship between what you're experiencing now. And the way that you're told to understand God. Um, that really struck me. Maybe I'll just bring out this one idea in chapter 3 that I thought was kind of sketchy. And that I would, I would want to reframe because I think there's better ways to see it. So he's talked about, you know, impatience and fear and fear of hell and et cetera. And towards the bottom of page 28 he writes, They, meaning some preachers, so fear they sow fear and an image of God as being impatient and ready to judge us the moment we make a mistake. The fact is this idea of God disregards God's sovereignty. It suggests he has no, actually, pardon me, I'm going to have to go back because this sentence doesn't make sense without reading a little bit more. I'll just go back up. It's still on page 28. Bible teachers can systematically match sins with particular verses that taken by themselves seem to promise hell. So he's really on this sort of hell for Christians thing, which neither one of us can relate to. But, but bear with me, I'm I'm going somewhere with this that I think we can relate to. Verses that taken by themselves seem to promise hell and damnation if a person died while committing one of these sins. Some preachers have become experts in finding these verses and delivering them to their flocks with spiritual hand, like spiritual hand grenades. They sow fear and an image of God as being impatient and ready to judge at the moment we make a mistake. The fact is, this idea of God disregards his sovereignty and suggests he has no control over when we die. Meaning that if you died while you're doing something wrong, that You'd go to hell. And, and I guess this is, this is a perfect example of what for me is the typical cadence I have through this book with Darren. I'm like, right on. He says something. I'm right on. He says something. Oh yeah. He says something. That's good. He says something. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And I think not only is this a disconnect for me, but it's an important disconnect because I think obviously, uh, some of the themes that are really important for me the main themes really are love and truth and when i hear something like this being put out um where this is about god's sovereignty and it suggests that god has no control over when we die
0: what does that mean but can you break that down a little bit well this God's suggests- sovereignty is such a big word i i know and and i th- is he saying that that god can in fact decide when we die or is he saying the opposite of that that's what i didn't quite follow
1: Well, I I think he is saying that, right? I think he is saying that, he goes on later at the top of page 29, for example, and says, it's not necessarily death itself that scares us, but the timing of our death that makes us nervous. I think what he's trying to say is, listen, you don't have to worry about committing a sin, like some sort of venal sin, as we might say in Catholicism, a a lethal sin, a a sin that will... An unforgivable uh, sin? Kinda, kinda, I think... You know, I don't want to put words in the, in the Catholics' mouths, but i th- that's definitely the idea here, right? Where he says, Bible teachers can systematically match sins with particular verses that, taken by themselves, seem to promise hell and damnation if a person died while committing one of these sins. Now, I, I think Darren says is seeing, hey, this is a sketchy idea. And I agree with him. This is a sketchy idea. In fact, I mean, I think we would both go further and say, you know what? No. This doesn't work. The the issue I, I'm taking here, Darren, right is, and I think this is really important, this distinction between God as sovereign and God as parent, and these two things are related in a productive and helpful way. So when he says here, the fact is, this idea of God disregards his sovereignty. It suggests he has no control over when we die. You're kind of still playing the same game that these these Bible preachers are playing, that pull out verses to support, you know, if you did this. Uh, right when you died, you, you'd you go to hell. Well, that's ridiculous. That's not how God works. Number one, read more of the text and you'll get it because it will contradict this notion. But number two, it's not about sovereignty then, <laughs> right? It's not about dying while you commit one of these things. It's the reality that God looks at who we are in total. Now that does include what your relationship with his with God is in a, in a formal sense. What have you formalized that to be? That does matter. Right. I've I have formalized my relationship in the sense that I have not committed my life to Islam or to um, the Buddhism, to um, any form of spiritual eclecticism. You know, I believe that um, and I, I, I live my life as a love relationship with God who um, I identify and understand to be the God of the Christian Bible and the Hebrew Bible taken together epitomized and uh, demonstrated and lived out, embodied, if you like, in a person who uh, lived and died and rose again, who is Jesus Christ. And who, Jesus the Christ, if you like, Christ is not a last name, it's a title, meaning Messiah, right? And so I think that's important. But this whole idea where he comes back to sovereignty, he's still caught in this trap. You no, know, get out of the trap. It's not just about sovereignty. You're writing about love, and here you are coming back to sovereignty and saying, whoa, 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 whoa! let's just play with so- – let's, let's, let's be careful with sovereignty. You know, God's going to make sure you don't die while you're committing one of these sins.
0: No, 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 no. So if you were to rewrite that section of the book, what would you say instead? Um,
1: if I could rewrite it – Or would it, you I'll... just leave it out? No,
0: I wouldn't leave it out. I, I mean I leave guess... out the God-sovereignty part.
1: Uh, well, you know, and maybe this comes back a little bit. So maybe, okay, let's expand this a little bit. I would expand my, I'm not, I'm not aiming to critique, um, Darren here. I'm not, that's not my aim. But when you, when you ask me that question, where would I go? I would say, I would take two or three examples. Let's take two or three examples that these Bible teachers use to seem to show, to seem to, I'm using Darren's words, that seem to promise hell and damnation if a person died while committing one of them. Let's take them. Look at them and look at the rest of the text. Let's put it out there because it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what Darren says, right? Ultimately, at the end of the day, the reader or the listener must, on the one hand, be self-reflective, self-informed, and self-responsible. They've got to make the choice. But I would want to put all the information out there that I can see that pertains to this and say, here's the information. Here's the conclusion I draw. Draw your own conclusions. And I would also want to, the other thing I would also want to say is that this is not a question of sovereignty. We're so stuck on the sovereignty notion because sovereignty is the most important thing. No, it is not. God's sovereignty is not the most important thing. And this is crucial. God's love, God's love is parent. God's truth is sovereign. They are co-central. They work together. They are part And they, they, they are flexible. It's like a, it's like a joint that's working well. It moves around, right? Sometimes one is on top of the other or seems to take precedence or predominance. Sometimes the other. And it's a flexible tension that's productive though. It's productive in its tension. It's not something where it's like, Oh, I don't know what to do. Which way do I go? Hey, there's, there's beauty. There's fluidity. There's creativity right? And this is where I'm really, really, really big and where I'm sensing that Darren is still caught up in this whole thing that he's trying to overthrow, but he's still
0: giving into it. And I think, no, don't do that. So I'm still a little confused because I'm looking at the bottom of 28. Yeah. So the fact, so he talks about how some preachers have become experts in finding verses and delivering spiritual hand grenades. Then Mm -hmm. he says, the fact is this idea of God disregards his sovereignty. It suggests he has no control over when we die. If he could extend our lives for the sake of saving our souls, wouldn't he do that? Mm-hmm. Oh, and then he says, we are warned to be ready when the bus leaves. The well, <laughs> We're warned to be ready. The bus leaves when it leaves. So we would interpret that to mean that his position is that we will just die when we die, and God is not controlling that. Seems to be saying both. Well, I, I, are we going too deep with this?
1: I I don't know. Like I guess I guess what I'm what I'm hearing is that what I what I think I'm understanding, if I was to summarize it, is that Darren is accustomed to hearing or has heard in past this message that listen, you can't even make one wrong move, or if you make a wrong move and it happens to be one of these particularly bad wrong moves you it's done
0: you're done you're finished right you're you're going to hell see having listened to him on his podcast i would have a i just have a super hard time believing that's his position that's why it's <laughs> oh, like I, we should interview him should mine or something because I, yeah, I don't I think just, that's his
1: position i think that's what he's what he's critiquing Oh, I thought
0: this whole time you've been
1: saying he's espousing that position. No, no, no. I think he's critiquing it, but he's critiquing Okay, I it. thought
0: you were critiquing him for holding this
1: position. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't think so. I th- he's talking about Bible teachers who can systematically match sins with particular verses, and he's not one of them.
0: Oh, okay.
1: He's totally not adv- advocating this, and we're. T- I'm totally on the right page, same page with him. We're walking along, we Throwing the ball back and forth. And then he goes and checks it someplace like crazy with this whole thing about sovereignty. And I'm like, no, it's not about sovereignty. God's not going to control.
0: God may have some control over that. Something may happen, right? God may do but things. But that's like not that. his idea. Then you're, that he's attributing this God's sovereignty to these other preachers. N- well, not the way I'm reading him in that last paragraph of 28. This idea
1: of God disregards his sovereignty, it suggests he has no control over when we die. If he could extend our lives for the sake of saving our souls, wouldn't he do that? And on the one hand, I agree with him, but I, th- on the other hand, it's not about that. That's not what's required to "quote unquote" save our souls. And some of this—this this is part of a much bigger conversation for me about, you know, going to hell and saving our souls. I'm using air quotes here. And 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 some of this is stuff that's.
0: Yeah, yeah. This no, is I'm a not pretty cut. Co- right leaving yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. No. No, and I think. Well, I I propose we move on and just chalk this little section up to being much bigger than it appears and maybe not as clearly laid out as it could be. All right. Well, I guess uh, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I feel toward a, i I think I feel kind of biased towards him because I, I don't know how many of his podcasts I have listened to. Maybe 20 or 30. Holy smokes. So, I had no idea. So... Yeah, he is all about love and is, yeah, yeah. so I. And
1: that's why he's getting me with this whole return to sovereignty. And I think, I think that's what he's saying. Okay. You know, we got to be careful about God's sovereignty. God will keep you alive. God, God won't let this happen to you because God is sovereign. No, God won't let it happen to you because God loves you. And because God looks at your entire life. God sees the, God sees you truly as you are. God doesn't see you in your last moment. It's that kind of like, what have you done for me lately attitude. God doesn't have a what have you done for me lately attitude. That's not who God is. And, and I'm, and I think Darren would say that too.
0: It's just that his solution here doesn't suggest that as far as I'm reading, but that's, that's where let's, we need to get him on the show. Okay. Let's do it. (laughs) Where else did you want to go? You had something even bigger, I thought. Oh, yeah. I do. Let's, let's go into
1: chapter four. And I know I'm probably missing a lot of stuff out that I could be touching on, but. He's got this idea in Chapter 4 of kindness. Love is kind, and I think he's right. But he opposes kindness. He says that its opposite is, he opposes it with uh, manipulation. And this made me, I was really, really kind of working with this for a little while. And uh, I want to see if I can take you through what occurred to me and what occurred for me as I was reading pages 36 to 38. He writes some good things. So top of 36. What is so disturbing to me is the number of hurting people who simply believe that love does not need to be kind in order for it to be authentic. Uh,
0: Bang on. Yeah. He talks about somewhere in here about God being an alcoholic, like some people with like this abusive, one day he's loving, one day he's not. And not that he sees God that way, but his concern is that some people view that God is really that way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly
1: carry on so it 's further down on thirty six perhaps it 's because we are a generation that is starving for love the top of twenty thirty seven It's this thirty seven and thirty eight that I really want to focus on top of thirty seven The real problem with us swallowing this lie, um, this lie that uh, kindness has been replaced by uh, a counterfeit, which is manipulation, is that we ultimately perceive god 's heart the same way. The great counterfeit of kindness is manipulation now. <sighs> There are some a couple of classic things in here that I think are are kind of problematic, and they kind of build for me. And it begins just in that next paragraph uh, on page thirty seven. In order for kindness to be authentic, it must have no ulterior motive behind it. The moment a hidden motive supports a kind act, the act itself ceases to be kind and suddenly becomes manipulation. And my my response to that was just purely um, you know rubbish. Well, yeah, couldn't it be both? <laughs> Couldn't it be both manipulation and kindness? Yeah, at the same time. Well, on the one hand, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, on the other hand, I think every every act I do has uh, an ulterior motive. I'm I'm because I'm always doing it. I'm always involved. So if I want the world to be a better place, if I want the best for someone, ah, uh,
0: totally see where you're going. Fascinating. You know, I find that I, and this and this. So our this motives is are, are. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: This is huge and we've got to be really careful about this. And this is the problem. I guess, I guess if I was to, to, to use a word for Darren through this word, through this book, if I could say, you know, there's one thing I would really like to see more of in this book. If I could be, you know, opportunity for improvement here for Darren, careful. Being more careful. He's not sufficiently careful because I think this is really problematic. That kindness in order to be authentic must have an ulterior motive. You know what happens for me? When I feel loved, I am able to be kind and generous and open. And it's not for no reason at all. Because you know what happens? When I feel deeply loved and I am kind to others, that feeling of being loved is affirmed, is renewed, is
0: invigorated, is expanded. That does huge things for me. It has a huge value for me. So would you say then there's always an ulterior motive? Because it seems like there is, even if it's an ulterior motive for good. Yeah. Like there's always, that's really, I'd never thought of it that way. So are you, so it seems like you're advocating then when we do a kind act, it's not like we just, we're this, we're, we're a robot and these, these binary combinations just cause us to do this kind thing. We're doing that kind thing for a reason. Thus we are motivated and trying to get to some outcome. Exactly. And it might be a very good outcome, but we're still, we're still trying to pull the levers to get it the direction we want to go. Like, so like your example of trying to make the world a better place. Exactly.
1: Exactly. 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 And there's benefit for me. It's not just that there's a motive, but that I, I actually benefit from kindness. You know, and I think if you look at Brene Brown's work, you're going to see some of this, right? If you look at other people like that, how we act towards others impacts us. It has it does things for us. And I think the reality of a Christian understanding of human interaction is very soundly based in that. So when we try to get into this, you know, it's the same thing. You should love God for no benefit. Loving God, this this kills me. (laughs) This totally kills me, John. I'm writhing here. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Because I'm looking over at like these books. I've got I've got these are classics. I've got Anders Nygren. Uh, agape and eros. And he's talking about the differences between agape and eros. And agape, it sees no particular virtue in that other thing, in that thing in the beloved. And there's no, if I'm understanding it correctly, there's no benefit that I derive. It's not about something I get. Crap. That is crap. That is utter crap. That is, that is a profound lie. That, that, to put it in Darren Hufford's words, that's a satanic lie. The benefit I get from loving God is being loved by God, being in a love relationship with God, where this keeps coming back to me. What happens? You know what happens? I'm transformed. I am in love with the self that I am becoming through being loved by God. I sleep better at night. I like who I am. I value my decisions. I respect myself more. Are you telling me that I'm loving God for no reason at all, for no benefit, for no value? Absolutely not. I am totally in this. But that sounds selfish. That's so crap that it's selfish. It's so part of what it is to be a human being. It is so
0: But to human think that beings nothing... are fallen and sinful.
1: Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have to go there? <laughs> well,
0: I'm that, not that's... being I'm not being facetious. In other words, that, that those are like the those are I'm just that's just stream of consciousness. Those are like the next thoughts that go through my head is like the classic rebuttal. I know. And I'm not sure if I believe it or not, but that's like the next step. That, that would be the objection to what you're saying of like, well, yeah, but we're, we're fallen and sinful because of Adam and Eve. And so we shouldn't
1: want to feel respected and respectable. We shouldn't want to see ourselves making good choices. We shouldn't want to see ourselves being kind and being open to others. As I mentioned, I'm completely Well most we should want to be
0: zeros. We should want to be absolutely nothing because then God can fill us. I'm mm-hmm. being very sarcastic. No, 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 I I I appreciate you I appreciate you mentioning it, but, but I think this
1: is this is completely backwards and destructive and anti Christian thinking. And you could take that anti Christian and trough off the Christian. The An. It's as anti Christian as as I think things could be. God is deeply interested in us. When God wants to see us being conformed to the image of Christ, that is in terms of character. That is not in terms of personality. That is not in terms of who you are. In terms of how you with all the creativity, individuality and responsibility of you being you, live out this idea of love is kind, love is patient, love is kind, love is etc., of how you uh manifest The love that you have by being in love with God and being loved by God to yourself, to others, and to your world. The idea of being a zero is nowhere. It's nowhere in scripture. It's, it's taking, you know, it's taking things like Galatians 2, uh, 19 to 21, uh, or 19, 20 and stripping them. Just, just stripping them. You might just rip them right out. As though they have no relationship, A, to the guy that wrote them. That would be, I, I, I think we're pretty, we're pretty sound on Paul being the author of that. And number two, the background in terms of the Old Testament. There's a covenantal context here that we always seem to forget because we are so caught up. And this is, this is where a guy like Darren, he, he is your bread and butter. He is your, he's your guy batting clean up with the fastball down the center. Right. This is where Darren is gonna come in, take a sledgehammer, and I'm totally for him and I am totally with him, saying, Man, you're believing stuff that don't make no sense. That if you put it in any other context, you'd back away. And this this is where exactly where I want to go. You're you're taking us right there.
0: Okay. (laughs) Go to Page (laughs) I'm I'm wondering if I need to call nine one (laughs) one. Well,
1: I don't know. Just wait, just wait, just wait. So this whole idea that we have no ulterior motive. And then he he writes on the top of 38, the, the very top, the problem with being fed synthetic kindness is that over time people develop a taste for it. And I thought, oh, well, you know, some people do back away from that. I'm not exactly sure about that. That can happen, but also the opposite can happen. Sometimes people do submit them, you know, go into detox. And sometimes they do make it through. But the next part, we are a generation of Christians who – and at the end of the paragraph, he he finishes it this way. He says, "Who train their palates to crave, to actually crave this lie, and ultimately prefer it over truth?" And I think, again, I don't I, I don't agree with the way he's finished it. I think there's some some stuff there that's good, but I started writing and I I wrote literally like three paragraphs on this of how I would finish it, and maybe I can just read that and. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'll, I'll start it as, as he started it. We are a generation of Christians who, and this is my, these are my words now. And I'll tell you when I stop. Um, I'll just read the whole thing. Have allowed ourselves to be convinced that things that we would perceive as or question as being unloving in other areas of our lives are in the context of God and Christianity, loving. We've done this because we've accepted that the most basic notion in christianity is reward or punishment going to heaven or going to hell we've also accepted the idea that god's love is so very different from human love that our own experiences of love and often our experiences in general do not apply to our understanding of god and god's love so these are the problems the two problems um uh, We perceive things as unloving in other areas, but in Christianity, we call them loving. And then we've got this sort of real focus on punishment and reward, going to heaven or going to hell. By failing to understand that Jesus demonstrated love first by healing people in a way that showed that he deeply understood and knew them. And that God desires that our lives now, not just in heaven or hell or whatever, the future, now should be abundant and rich because they are grounded in an authentic love relationship with God. In other words, by failing to allow real life and the real significance of real love relationships with family, friends, and spouses to inform our love relationship with God, so we understand our love relationship with God through these other relationships, not just the reverse, because sure, Christians do allow that their love relationship with God should inform their their, you know, how they love their kids and spouses. It needs to be both ways though. Because if not, we fail to put our love relationship with God through the necessary paces in order to anneal it and fortify it, so to, to, to strengthen it, so that it should take on its proper role. And that's that's there are a couple of things involved. First of all, empowering us through the process of living with and learning from the tension between divine love and human love. So we're learning that tensions are a good thing and they're necessary. And by having our perception of divine love sharpened and focused through this process. So we learn, you know, first of all, we're dealing with tensions. We learn and understand that they're important. Through that process, then secondly, we learn more about divine love. We learn more about God's love through understanding and having that understanding shaped by and critiqued by sometimes our understanding of love with our kids, with our spouses, with our families, etc., our friends. But this is the this is the kind of, the third piece is the kicker. To become those, so we can become people who may competently allow our experience of God as God's love, as being loved by God, to inform and even critique our understanding of God. So of God's truth as we read the Bible. Because we certainly allow the reverse. So it needs to be reciprocal, it needs to go both ways. We read the Bible in order to understand how God loves us. We experience God's love. And therefore, we're able to read the Bible better. We need both of these things. And in the same way that we need um, good skills, like exegesis and skills about understanding the culture and the audience and um, you know the views of the time, to understand the Bible, we need to develop those skills when it comes to understanding our experience, including the experience of love. But you know, I'm I'm totally on this horse about about love and truth. And this is it. When we allow, when we put ourselves in a position with certain understandings, we make it impossible for our experience of God's love, one, to condition us to the fact that tensions within human life and within Christianity are productive. Which means when you've got two things like love and truth, you don't go choosing between them that's a problem. I don't care which one you choose. They're both good. But if you choose only one, you're going to make mistakes. And I think typically what the evangelical church has chosen is love. Is Pardon me, is truth. What the liberal church has chosen is love. They both have problems. They're both not doing what they should be doing. So on the one hand, it's teaching us that tensions are necessary. Certain tensions, not all, but certain tensions are necessary and can be productive. But on the other hand, what it's doing is it's allowing us to say, My experience of God and being in relationship with God, translation, being loved by God, informs my understanding of God, i.e., God's truth, reading the Bible. We don't have this. We lack this. We certainly lack it in any systematic way. And all we want to do as evangelicals is say, I understand God through reading the Bible. What I do is I go to the Bible. If I have some questions, I go to the Bible. Well... Does your under, does your relationship with God inform and sometimes critique the way you read the Bible? We have no skill set. There is nothing that is established as a as a protocol as a way of validating the direction from experience to reading. I I do not see it and I have never seen it in the evangelical church. From reading to experience sure. Read about God this way; therefore, you should experience God like this, right? Just comes back down to, to um, the Jerry Bridges and uh, what's his book on? Oh, uh, well, that one I was n- not too hot on. No, I can't see it on the floor. I'm looking for it. I can't find it. We talked about it a little while ago. Trusting God. I think it was called Trusting God. It's all about moving from the Bible to your experience. It's about understanding your experience in light of the Bible. Well, you've got to go both ways. And this is the point for me that is absolutely crucial. And if we don't have this, we're stuck and we can't get out of it. You know, and I appreciate some of the ways that Darren's trying to take us out of it. But I, I I think my hunch now at the early part of the book is that the reason why, you know, back on whatever it was, page 28, if I'm, if I'm right about it, that that he's kind of looking and saying, Hey, this is kind of seeing sovereignty the wrong way. And Greg's saying, not about sovereignty. And then on page 37, where he's saying, you know, kind of should have no ulterior motives. No way. Forget it. It certainly is should. Depends on what they are. You know, I think the reason for this is that there, there is a, there is a disjuncture between the role of experience and the role of understanding. And in the evangelical church, and even still with Darren, I think he's done a great job, but even still in this book, at least what I'm seeing is a preferencing of understanding over experience because we don't we're shaky on this idea how how do we value experience how do we vet it how do we adjudicate it how do we interpret it and those are valid questions but the fact that we have the
0: questions doesn't mean that that our response to experience is to throw it out or to devalue it right well i think it comes back to conversations that we have over and over again that i don't know that we've thoroughly (laughs) untangled but it's the it's the thing that I always come up against, which is that you can't completely trust your experience. It comes back to the whole, you know, we're fallen, we're emotional, we can't completely trust your emotions, you can't completely trust your experience, you you know, you, you have to trust something outside of yourself, which is, you know, the Bible, but, but. Because, it's, because it's written and it's concrete and all that, and, and so those experiences and those wild feelings you were having. Well, I mean, can you really trust all of them?
1: But how do you, how do you trust your experiences? How do you trust your readings of the Bible?
0: How, how are they? Exactly. No, exactly. Exactly. No, that's, that's something that you've totally uh, illuminated for me. I mean, I was reading something out of some newsletter I was getting, and it was all about how we need to reorient our lives. And, the only thing that we can reorient our lives around is the Bible, because the Bible is is immovable. And something about that smell weird to me. And in discussing it with you, you're like, that was the exact point you raised. Yes, but we bring our our fallibility to reading the Bible as well. Well,
1: and our lack of education. I mean, I don't. I don't want to turn Christianity. And this is the, maybe this is where we avoid the idea that the only people who can really be good Christians. Who really have the possibility are learned scholars because they're the only people who've got the skill to read the Bible well enough. And once you get into that sort of position, you're on extremely shaky ground. But the other side of what I'm trying to propose, this interrelation, this, this productive tension between love and truth, between the experience of being deeply loved by God, between an understanding of who God is, through the text, the, the other side of that is that you don't ha- you you are informed through your relationship, through your experiences. You 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 are informed about who God is and who God is not. I will argue for certain things, and I will I, I will be deeply motivated towards those things, not because I've read them in the Bible, but because I've experienced them through my life, through being with God. Now, are they in the Bible? Yeah, they are. If the Bible completely contradicted what I was saying, what would happen? I would have to take a step back. I would have to ask myself, so what's going on for you, Greg? Now, does that happen very often? No. No, it doesn't. Has it happened? Yes. And what happens? That takes a lot of time to work that through and say, okay, you know what? I might have misunderstood the Bible. I might have misunderstood my experience. Where do
0: we sit? You know what all comes back to what we've said all along, which is, our efforts should be around trying to bring all of them into harmony and reconciling them all to each other versus favoring one or the other.
1: Yeah. And I think I would put uh, harmonizing them and reconciling them so long as we aren't collapsing one or the other of those two poles in order to do it. If you've got to collapse, if you've got to ignore, like, you know, one of the critiques that I raise frequently and we talked about a lot with Kyle Edelman is that he's looking at three or four verses and making a. a, a you know, laying out a sort of a protocol, uh, a set of, you know, I won't say rules, but ways that Christians should
0: be. but we, Principles.
1: Principles. But he's ignoring other verses that contradict the three or four that he's laid out. And, and nowhere does he ever in the book say, you know what, I realize that certain verses are going to say things that contradict the verses that I'm going to use here. And here's generally what I think about that. You know, and I, I personally... I don't think that's a sufficient caveat. I think you really have to, you have to say, okay, you put them down on paper. Here's, here's what I'm saying. Here are some opposing views in the same text. And here's why I think my views are right. I think he's got to do that if he's got to have credibility. But he didn't even put in a little caveat. He didn't do any of that. And for that reason, for me, he doesn't have credibility. He's lost it because as just as you said, there's, there's no reconciliation, even within the text itself. And I think I personally... My view, <clears throat> see this. This is the big danger, John. This is the big, big, big danger. I don't think that Kyle Idleman doesn't know his Bible. I don't believe that. I think he knows it very, very well. He may know it better than I do. And I've spent a few years, you know, poking around in there and taking some courses and blah blah. I think what's happening is that his experience is driving him in a certain direction to read the text in a certain way. Now, you may say, Hey, Greg, you just said you do the same thing. Indeed, I do, John. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> no, indeed, I do. But, <laughs> but this, this is the crucial, crucial, crucial difference. I have put a lot of time and a lot of my graduate work has gone into the idea of what it means to understand and interpret experience. I'm aware of those experiences. I'm aware of what they are. And I know I'm, I mean, They can lead me in certain ways. And a lot of times I'll be very pleased about that. Other times I'll think, ah, okay, this is, uh, you're, you're, this is kind of edgy. You're going to have to think about this, Greg. You're going to have to mull this over. You're going to have to kind of, you know, feel your way through this. All of those sort of ways of looking at it. I don't think, as I said, in Christianity in general, the, the, the idea of interpreting experience, the idea of having a sense of what good experiential exegesis looks like is nowhere to be found. So the problem, the the real risk we have is, is running blind. In a nutshell, if we don't examine what goes into our understanding, the understanding of our experience, if we don't take time and look at that with as much, treating it with as much respect and viewing it as importantly as exegeting the Bible, we run major risks.
0: Well, the spooky music means only one thing. This episode's over, but another one's on the way. Thanks for listening to Untangling Christianity. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment at our website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 42. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. And if you're looking for just one more way to give feedback on the podcast, we're running a survey, untanglingchristianity.com slash survey. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under Creative Commons License. Thank him for his generosity by supporting him at his website. Tune in next week for a new episode.